All right, so 1 Peter chapter 3, again, looking at this paragraph, verses 8 through 12, and uh, you guys remember that line, the Declaration of Independence, uh, talks about how our Creator has endowed us as creatures with certain inalienable rights, such as, remember those? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And with such a statement, it seems like there would be a lot more happiness uh, around here in our country. But, uh, you know, when it's our right to pursue it, yet many don't. I suppose they would say that they are trying to, right? But I don't think they really understand what happiness is, and uh, they look for it in all the wrong places. Uh, Peter writes this passage specifically to tell us how to pursue happiness, and uh, he's writing to believers. It's the birthright of believers to have happiness, but... uh, we do have to follow his plan. And so we're looking at these 13 key ingredients for the blessed life or for the, um, for the good life, a life of happiness. So let's read the text. Uh, I'm going to go there. I'm not there already. Uh, 3, 8. I'm going to read this in the Legacy Standard Bible just to change things up. So verse 8. What's that? Attaboy. Attaboy. <laughs> All right, verse 8, now to sum it up, now to sum up, uh, which unfortunately is not the best translation, I don't think, of that particular word. It's telos. Uh, yeah, so finally, I think it's better. Anyway, I'm going to keep going with the legacy standard. Uh, all of you, <laughs> oh my goodness, so bad. So finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Oh, man, that's not a good translation either of that phrase. Okay, we'll come back to it. I'll explain. Verse 10, 4, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to open up your word together. Uh, Please uh, open up our hearts to receive it. Uh, May we see your glory in this text and delight in you and receive what you have to say because we love you and we want to honor you and glorify you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, dying in our place and for rescuing us from uh, our sin. Thank you for paying our penalty so we have no fear of judgment. Thank you also for redeeming us from a futile way of life. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that uh, you have opened our eyes to, to see the truth of Scripture um, so that we love it. And so this is the means, part of the means by which you uh, save us from a futile way of life. We follow your word. It's our guide. We know it to be true. So... Bless us as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
yeah, so oh, the passage is, is uh, I said, 13 ingredients for, you know, it's like God's recipe for the good life, uh, right? Because uh, he says um, in verse 10, quoting Psalm 34, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must do these things. So, so that's how David, when he writes Psalm 34, is talking. Uh, he appeals to us, hey, do you want to, do you want to love you want to have a life that you love so that you desire to see more and more days? Then live this way. You've got you to gotta do these things. Uh, so he's tempting us with the good life. You can live your best life now. Um, but uh, he's not talking about a life without difficulty because in Psalm 34 it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Right? And certainly, Peter quoting Psalm 34 as he's already talked about all the uh, difficulties that we face as Christians, the suffering that we face as Christians. And so neither David nor Peter are conceiving of the good life as a life without difficulty, without suffering. No, it's full of difficulty, full of suffering, but yet still desirable because you know God. You know His undeserved favor. You love Him. You enjoy Him. He sustains you, and it's absolutely thrilling. Uh, okay, so he says it that way, the one who desires life to love and see good days. That's how he describes what I'm calling the good life or the blessed life. That's what's in your notes. But uh, to say another way, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So again, if you live this way, then one of the blessings that you receive is answered prayer, uh, the Lord hearing and answering and, uh, but then also there's that phrase, the end of verse nine, uh, you know, don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but, but give a blessing instead for, here's the reason why you should do those things for you were called for the very purpose. Uh, and literally it's, you were called for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Uh, so for what purpose? For the purpose of inheriting a blessing? No, that's not what Peter's saying. That's the way the LSB makes it sound uh, because they've added their interpretation to that phrase. More literally, it should say, for you are called for this purpose. The question is, what does the this refer to? Does it refer to the inheriting of a blessing? Or does it refer to uh, giving a blessing even though you've been wronged? Well, certainly, Peter means you've been called to give a blessing even though you've been wronged. That's the whole theme of this book. He's been talking about it. He said the same thing elsewhere. But also, of course, he quotes in verse 10, Psalm 34, which states that point in another way. Um, so he's not saying, uh, you know, give a blessing because you are called to inherit a blessing. Um, hopefully that makes sense. I covered that before. <laughs> you have to remember two weeks ago when I uh, explained all that. Um, Psalm 34 it is interesting. Uh, he, he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, long for the pure milk of the word. Remember that? Going over that? And then it says, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's in verse 3, I think, right? First Peter 2, 3. Since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And that's a look back to Psalm 34. So Peter, uh, evidently, before he wrote this, was meditating on Psalm 34. And I think you can see other traces of Psalm 34 more allusions to it. 
throughout the book of 1 Peter. And so uh, I would encourage you to read Psalm 34 and then immediately after read 1 Peter and see what connections you can make. Uh, it's just exciting to, to track. You want, we want to track with the author, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, so we're looking at these ingredients for the good life. And uh, like I said last time, we're going to, let's, let's whip up a batch of the good life uh, using his recipe, these 13 ingredients, right? So the first one is, he says in verse 8, to be like-minded. And uh, that's the, in the ESV, it says, have unity of mind. Uh, be, like, be like-minded, I think, is, is a good way to say it. So we're to think the same thing. The word for thinking or the work for, word for the mind and then the word for same. Where to have, or one, one mind, uh, or same-minded, and how is this possible when we're all so different? Well, we are all uh, have the mindset that's shaped by the gospel, truth that is revealed to us from God, uh, so we agree on all the, the uh, we think and assess the essentials of life the same way, um, and so... Uh, in order for us to live the good life, we've got to be thinking about the gospel every day. Um, like the psalmist says, the prayer was, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, with your covenant love, your hesed, your gospel love. Satisfy us in the morning. Wake up. This is the air we breathe. It's the good news of the gospel. Uh, we weren't seeking him. We are sinners living for ourselves in our own glory. We are suppressors of the truth, but he sought us out. That's his covenant love. It's initiative-taking love. And he committed to loving us when we were sinners, right? Even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so because he loved me then, when I was rebelling against him and suppressing the truth, well, certainly he's going to love me now. And he always will because his love does not depend on my performance. Uh, his, he loves because he has chosen to love us. And so we wake up every morning uh, thinking this and, and let that shape our perspective, and then we're humbled by it, right? Um, we, are, uh, we feel safe, we feel blessed, we're joyful, we're strengthened in that way in order to be faithful to the Lord and to live the life he's called us to because of the gospel. And we do it for, not for our own glory, uh, we do it for his glory. So be like-minded, that's the first one. And then uh, the second one is be sympathetic. Uh, and so verse 8, the ESV says, after have unity of mind, it says sympathy. So have sympathy, um, which literally means to suffer with. And the idea is that when you see people who are suffering, you don't criticize them or pull back from them or steer around them and go somewhere else. You move towards them and to suffer with them. Uh, that's the call that he gives. We're not to be consumed with ourselves, but to focus on others, uh, to share in others' pain in the church. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing, weeping with those who weep, uh, not being indifferent. And we talked about how to do that, uh, but I won't sum that up. I'm going to go to the next point because I want to get through this passage this morning. Uh, so the third one is love others in the church as family. Love others in the church as family. If you want to live, if you want to have days that you 
that you enjoy and that you uh, look forward to, then love others in the church as family. That's behind those words, brotherly love in verse 8. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. It's a form of the word Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. Uh, Outside of the New Testament, it was uh, only used to speak of real families and uh, maybe... Maybe we can call them nuclear families. You can call them biological, but sometimes you adopt them, and that's a real family, right? So I'm going to call them biological families. So nuclear families, I think, is the word to use. Uh, it's, so this word is only used, outside the New Testament, it's only used to speak of that kind of a family, mommy and a daddy and the kids. And, but the scripture writers take it and apply it to the church, uh, this new family. And uh, Peter's spoken of it this way in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he's also spoken of it in chapter 2, verse 17, in a little bit different way, when he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Uh, so the body of Christ is the family of God. So, so let your relationship... Uh, that you have with one another, that is, that you have been uh, caused to be born again, or we get another way, you've been adopted into God's family. Let that relationship, it's objectively true, let your relationship uh, with one another govern the way that you love one another. Let the relationship, which is objectively true, let it actually govern and control the way that you think about one another. That's what he's saying when he says, have brotherly love. Um, so biological or nuclear families, uh, not nuclear, that's what uh, Matthias says all the time, right? Nuclear? Well, a lot of people do. Nuclear families. Of course, I realize we're not talking about a bomb. That's usually what people are talking about. Jimmy Carter used to say nuclear. Yes. And he was a nuclear engineer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to say, every time I've said it this morning, I'm like, wait a minute, did I say it right? <laughs> Get a little nervous when I have to say it. Okay. So uh, nuclear families, they love each other in a unique way. And it ought to be that way in the church. The attachment, the devotion, the care of a family is to be applied to the church family. We're not a social club. Peter's saying don't, don't view each other as strangers or as mere acquaintances, or as distant relatives, recognize that you're family, and love each other that way. Uh, so, do you think you love others that way in the church? Do you seek to know them, recognizing them as family? Uh, allowing your understanding, it's like an automatic understanding, right, of a nuclear family. It's like innate. We have, we have an understanding of how that ought to be. Uh, not everyone lives that way, right? Husbands and uh, wives don't always love each other that way, but when they don't, they know they're not doing what they should. It's uh, kind of an innate knowledge. Well, take that innate knowledge and then apply it to the way that you view others. First um, Timothy 5.8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know that they should be have that kind of loyalty and that kind of care for their own family members. And so it ought to be that we have that kind of care and concern and make provision for those in our church family. Um, 
It's this idea, I think, that is, uh, well, it's a major reason why uh, many don't want to join a church. Uh, they don't have any intention of settling down with a particular group of people and being that committed um, because it does take a lot of commitment. You're giving your life to them. Um, but Peters would say, don't, don't do that. Join. Be committed. Uh, love others in the church as family. And then Peter would add to it, don't forfeit this blessing. Don't forfeit a satisfying, enjoyable life with God. You do that when you don't love others in the church as family. That, those are the teeth, right? That's the, it's adding the motivation to it. Okay, so love others in the church as family. That's number three. Number four is be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Or maybe you could say compassionate. Uh, but I really do like tender-hearted. Uh, ESV says it that way, have a tender heart. Uh, and again, all of these are adjectives that he's giving. Uh, they're not actions, really. They're adjectives. This is, this is an attitude that should characterize you. That's what he's saying with these first five that are listed in verse 8. Um, so a tender heart, the, word, the Greek word speaks of good bowels or good intestines. Um, we don't usually speak of feeling in those places, uh, we, we usually speak of it as the heart, right? Which is why we translate it, tender heart, not tender intestines. <laughs> but tender intestines would be a legitimate translation. Uh, so we must be tender toward one another. We must be tender on the inside. What does that mean? Um, I... Uh, well, you know what it's like when you're bruised. Sometimes you get a bruise and you don't really realize that you were bruised. And then someone bumps into you or you're bru you bruised your arm and then they grab your arm and you're, oh, like, oh man, what was that from? You're trying to think about when that happened. You're injured, right? When you're tender to that. And so Peter's saying you need to be that way towards other members of the body. You're, you're tender. It doesn't take much. You just have to see something. You just become aware of something, and, and it's painful to you. You feel it. You're so sensitive. Um, that's that's uh, compassion. That's being tenderhearted. And you have to be this way if you want to live the good life. And that's amazing. Um, it's difficult for me and for others I've noticed, to distinguish between sympathy, which you referred to a couple phrases before, and tenderheartedness. How do we separate those two? Uh, certainly this one, tenderheartedness, it has to do with is emphasizing the feelings that come from within. And I think sympathy looks first to uh, outward, uh, you see someone suffering, and so you suffer with them. You're moving towards the suffering. So what you're focusing on is outward. Tenderhearted, the focus of the word is what is going on inside of you. And so you are already positioned to be that kind of person where if, if they touch you or you see something, then out from you comes this tenderheartedness. But certainly they overlap. And actually, I think that's what Paul's, or Peter is doing in this text. 
He's got these five words that all go go together in verse 8. Unity of mind is like-mindedness. Well, and and the last one is have a humble mind, right? See the end of verse 8. It's translated different ways, but they both have that word for mind. Uh, Be the same mind, be same-minded and be humble-minded. So he's focusing on the mind. Let truth shape your perspective. Have a particular mindset, okay? And then he has moving in from those two, he has two words that speak of how we feel. We're to be sensitive. We're to be caring for others. Uh, It's not enough to say, I've got a mindset. Well, I understand what I'm supposed to do. Yes, I do think of you that way. Okay, well, if you do prove it, you should feel a certain way, right? There's a command to feel things. It's amazing. Empathy. Empathy. Yeah. Uh, And then moving in further is brotherly love, love as family. And I think that's the main point. That's the thing that ties it all together. But how do you have that brotherly love? It's it's when you start from the outside and have uh, the right mindset with truth, right? And then you feel a certain way because your feelings are always shaped by what you think. So fill your mind with truth and you'll feel a certain way and it culminates in brotherly love. And then you show the world that you are not just this floating Christian, you're part of God's family, right? And that display, that's excellent behavior. That displays His glory. Uh, and that's the whole, that's the, the larger point in the text. Okay, so you've got these two, two words, these two feeling words. And so I'm not sure that Peter necessarily intends us, tends for us to separate out all the, the differences between those two. Uh, but yet I do think there's a different emphasis in those, with each of those words. So this one speaks of genuine affection and sensitivity to the needs of others. You need to be sensitive. Um, so sympathy is feeling what others feel. You see them suffering and you move towards them. You join them. Compassion or tenderheartedness is feeling when others are in need. And this one I think is a little bit, requires a little bit more because it's, you have compassion when others are in need, whether or not they feel anything. See, the first one requires that they're suffering and you're suffering with them. This one, they may not even know what's going on. They don't know the predicament they're in. They don't know they're in danger, perhaps. But you are sensitive to it. And so you care for them, right? And, that, and it manifests itself sometimes in going to somebody, brother, I've got to warn you, right? And he doesn't know he needs a warning. But that's compassion. And that's the way Jesus... That's the way Jesus is. Jesus had compassion. And the, the scripture writers, the gospel writers, talk about how he was, he was deeply moved with compassion. That's his word, tenderheartedness. He was, he was tenderhearted. Uh, like when he um, was out on the water uh, approaching the, 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 the land, and he looked out and he saw all the people. And they looked like sheep uh, without a shepherd. They didn't have any leadership. And he was moved with compassion. He was tenderhearted. He was sensitive. Now, if you go ask those people, hey, how are you guys doing? They're like, good, yeah, we're seeing Jesus. This is great. And he, he sees them and he knows that they're, they're in danger. And he's moved. He's like, guys, I don't know if you remember the context, like Mark 6. Um, I know you guys want to rest, but we don't have time for rest. Look at these people. Right? And he's moved and he's compelled to go forward. Um, and to, to land, to dock, and to teach the people. And that's what he did when he had compassion. He taught them the truth. 
And he taught for a long time, the text says. He taught for a long time. It's awesome. Because that's what they needed. So we need to imitate Jesus in this way and be sensitive to people's needs. Not just thinking about our own needs, but thinking about others. Uh, seeing others who are in need, seeing others who are weak, who are struggling with sin, who are stuck in sin. So there's a lot of opposites here. It's the opposite of harshness, because harshness is insensitive. Uh, it's the opposite of indifference. It's the opposite of self-righteousness, which usually accompanies harshness and a lot of times indifference. Um, and uh, so oftentimes we're grieving, and it isn't pleasant to grieve. This, this costs something to live this way. Uh, your life will be more difficult. So think of Paul's expressions in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 through 29. He says, apart from such external things, remember that long list of difficulties in his life and all the ways that he suffered, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's that concern is that word for anxiety. Uh, Chris alluded to it this morning. Not all anxiety is sinful. Some of it's necessary, ought to be there. And there ought to be an anxiety that we have for one another because we're sensitive uh, concerning the condition of others. And then he goes on, he says, verse 29, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-nine: who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's the word burning. Who is led into sin without my burning? So Paul would grieve uh, when others struggled with sin. He was not unaffected by others and unmoved. It was painful for him. Um, when someone sins, when someone was sinning, he was set on fire with grief. That's what he's saying. He was set on fire with grief. Boy, it got to give us grace that we would be that way towards one another, towards members of the body. Set on fire with grief. Not because they are bothering us, or inconveniencing us, but we, we love them. They're our brother, they're our sister. Um, so opposite of harshness, opposite of indifference, opposite of self-righteousness, but also it's the opposite of being cold and apathetic, and it's the opposite of being self-absorbed and uncaring. So many people in the church in... You know, maybe you're part of a small group, relationships in the church. Many people are carrying tons of sorrow on their shoulders. And it's like they're, they're bent down with grief and their own pain. And we see them and they appear to us to be cold and aloof and antisocial. And we can wonder why they aren't more friendly, why they aren't more welcoming to others, not realizing that they really lack the strength to move toward us. So as our hearts grow more and more tender, we'll feel less disappointed with those kinds of people. You might call them bruised reeds. We'll feel less disappointed with those bruised reeds and we'll be more prone to move toward them praying that God would use us to serve them and to build them up, to care for them.
to bind them up. Some don't feel it, though. Maybe you'd say that. I don't know if I feel that sensitivity. I mean, set on fire by grief? I don't know. I don't know if I know that by, in my own experience. Um, what should we do? What would you say? Someone says that. And maybe you've had that. Maybe you felt that way. I've certainly had been questioned, given this question many times throughout my years of pastoring. I know I'm supposed to be compassionate, tenderhearted, but I just find that I'm not. Some people I see, it's like, like Chris was saying, it just comes naturally for them, but for me, it just doesn't come naturally. What do I do? What would you say? Pray for it. Ask others to help you see your incompassion, your uncompassion. Discompassion. <laughs> ah, compassion. Uh, ask others to help you see it. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, like call me out when you see that I'm being harsh or when okay. I'm um, being cold. Okay, good. What else? I would say start doing it. Just start. Okay. And if they said, what do you mean? So begin showing. So begin showing that you care for someone, even if it's one thing. You have to start. If you, you can wait for who knows how long, and you'll never exhibit that. Yeah. Or you can just begin. Okay, so it's Sunday, 11.50. Whoa, time's flying. Uh, <laughs> what do I do today? What, what, are you, what are you saying I should do? You talk to the person that you think is struggling, or you see someone, and they're intensely quiet, and you go up and you say, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, and you just begin a conversation with them. It doesn't have to be something that's rehearsed or anything like that. You just begin to show that you care. Yeah. So sensitivity will begin with sensing it. Well, let's, let's use your eyes. Let's use your ears. Uh, you can sniff it out, I guess. You can use your nose. Uh, you find all the problems. Okay. Sorry, I just had a cartoon image. I can't remember mine. But uh, you're sensing it. You're listening. You're, you're trying to find those things. That is practicing it, right? And you'll have a habit then. You can develop a habit of doing that. That can be the pattern of your life where you are looking for the needs of others. And then you go and show it, right? Not just seeing the need, but going and and you're talking about it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Were you going to say something? Yeah. I think is uh, sometimes we look at it as an emotion, and, and it's, it's not. It's in practice. You know, when you say, oh, some people are just more, more compassionate that way. But uh, tenderheartedness isn't, isn't evident to everybody unless it's put into practice. And so it isn't just the... Oh, you know, you, you were born that way. You have a greater feeling of tenderheartedness. But this is, through the Spirit, is, is action. It's put into practice. So just like she said, practice it. Yeah. It would be pray and do. Pray and do. Pray and do. Yeah. That's good. Pray that God shows you. Pray that God lets you see people the way He sees people. Yes. Because then you will love on people that you wouldn't mm-hmm. normally love on, or people that are so standoffish that other people aren't loving on them. Right. That's good. Study Jesus' life. Study Jesus' life. life. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. 
Okay, so we got some practical ones, some ways to uh, meditate on Scripture that prepare our minds for it, right? So, uh, yeah, looking at Jesus, looking at those times when He showed compassion, and then analyzing that text. What is it that He's thinking when He sees them? Can we tell? Of course we can tell. The The Scripture writers give us more information. We see what He did when it says that he was moved with compassion, he addresses the need. Um, and uh, yeah, if as we delight in the Lord and behold his glory, that is his glory, right? Yeah. And we delight in it. We say, this is awesome. This is perfection. This is true beauty and glory. And you admire him, then you will naturally even imitate him. You'll, you'll be changed from glory to glory, right? So and then, uh, then that's really kind of what you're saying, too. Help me to see this person the way that you do. Uh, so, um, and you can think about that from different angles. You can say, um, Lord, you love Joshua. See, he's on the front row, so we'll use him as an example. You love Joshua, and you have loved him. Even before the earth was created, you thought about Joshua and you loved him. And you sent your son to die for Joshua. You didn't spare your own son from judgment, but you gave him up for Joshua because you love him. And you desire his holiness. You, are, uh, you love him. You're protective of him. You, you are grieved when he sins. Lord, help me to, to be that way, right? So you spend time um, thinking about what Scripture says about Joshua and, and all of God's people. And uh, I think, and I, I referenced it last time, that's, I think, what the Apostle Paul was doing with the Philippians. Uh, he had the affection of Christ Jesus for them. Right? He says, I really do feel this way for you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he, he was thinking about how Christ Jesus was affected by them. And that's amazing that he's affected by his people. He cares about them, right? He loves them. Um, and yes, he is passionate. And so as we think about that, it makes it, uh, well, that's how our, our feelings and our thinking, all of that is transformed. And then, and then, yeah, we put it into practice. All right. So maybe be set on fire with grief when others sin and even when others are suffering. Uh, number five, be humble. Be humble. Uh, a, have a humble mind. Be humble-minded or lowly-minded. Uh, I kind of like that uh, translation. Be, be lowly-minded. This word was not viewed favorably. This idea, this practice, this attitude was not viewed favor- favorably in the Greco-Roman culture. It was viewed as a weakness rather than a future uh, virtue. Uh, one Bible teacher said, in the, in the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, only those of degraded social status were humble, uh, he uses this word, and, and humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame and inability to defend one's honor. Thus, the high value placed on humility by Israelites and Christians is remarkable. Um, so it's to think or judge, because it's got that word for mind, right, a mindset, to think or judge with loneliness. Uh, you, have a, you have a lowly view of yourself. Uh, you're seeing yourself as insignificant or unimportant. So in a, in a sense, Peter's saying, don't be self-absorbed. 
Have a low opinion of your own opinion. Have a low opinion of your own opinion. Uh, be content to go unnoticed by other people. Don't think you have to impress others. Regard God as more important than yourself and others as more important than yourself. Um, so the Greek world is a lot like our world, right? Uh, loneliness was looked down upon. They exalted pride. And we live in a culture that exalts pride. Even in the church, one Christian teacher said, just came across this quote last week, if I could write a prescription for the women of this world, I would provide each of them with a healthy dose of self-esteem and personal worth, taken three times a day until the symptoms disappear. I have no doubt this is their greatest need. If there is no one to give you a positive stroke, do it yourself. Make a list of your good qualities and focus regularly on them. That was on uh, Focus on the Family website. Was it really? Yeah. This is exactly the opposite of what Peter is telling us in this text. That is not part of the recipe for the blessed life. Peter gives 13 ingredients. That is not one of them. He doesn't think self-esteem is necessary. And he warns us, right, about esteeming ourselves too highly. He exhorts us in chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that comes after the statement in verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our greatest need is humility, not self-esteem. Why do Christian book writers, Christian radio teachers, and preachers teach that self-esteem is important? Why are there books written to help uh, husbands and wives build their mates' self-esteem and books written to help parents build their children's self-esteem. It's because those writers are actually unbelievers. No, just kidding. <laughs> you were nervous about that one, weren't you? <laughs> oh, man, that was fun. No. <laughs> That was, pretty, that was pretty bold. Uh, my face got a little red by that one. All right. No, no I, they're believers. Obviously, they, they love the Lord, and they do. You know, that writer cares about women. I mean, he's seen women that are hating their life, and they want what's best for them. Their heart breaks for them. But I do think that they've been looking too appreciatively at the world's recipe for the good life. They think that they can look at the world's recipes and sort out the good from the bad and mix it with what the Bible says and it'll all come out pretty well. But they never seem to be able to do it successfully. They end up contradicting, directly contradicting what Scripture says. If we want to know how to live the blessed life, we've got to go to God's Word. Never do we find God telling us in His Word to seek higher self-esteem. Um, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, right? Paul says in Philippians 2, 3. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Uh, we naturally think too highly of ourselves, right? We're given to the thought of our own... We're so given to the thought of our own importance, our education, our own achievements, our appearance. Look at me and the things that I am things I can do, the way I look. We're so easily wounded and hurt because someone hasn't treated us like the... Well, haven't, they haven't seen 
the, our importance, right? That's the way we feel. I certainly see it in my own life. So easily offended, quick to defend myself because I don't have a lowly view of myself. And you put a bunch of people like that in the same room, and it'll lead to problems. And this is why we have conflict in our relationships. There's another wrong notion about humility that's really gaining, has gained a lot of popularity in the church. Many say humility requires not having convictions about doctrine. Don't speak with such authority, like you have it all figured out. Uh, not speaking with certainty about the scriptures or doctrine, not speaking with certainty about anything other than the bare minimum one would have to believe to get to heaven. This is really popular in the emerging church, if you can remember way back when that was around. Um, they'd all speak, we'd all speak about being a journey. We're, we're just trying to figure this out, right? You go to their church websites. We're just trying to figure this out. We're sort of trying to sort it out just like you. Um, that, does that sound humble? To some people, that sounds humble, right? Who do you think you are that you would know? Well, I don't know. Because I don't know, I depend absolutely on what God has said. And it's actually proud to go throughout the Bible, find all the periods, and then put question marks, right? And make it sound like they're just questions. Maybe we don't really know. Maybe we can't really know. But yet God has spoken definitively and holds us accountable for those things, right? So humility says... God, you're right, even if I don't understand or it doesn't make sense or I can't fit it together with other things, you're right. I don't have the ability to sort through it. I'm just going to trust you. And so the humblest people or most humble people speak with authority where God has spoken. That is humility. And to make it sound like it's uncertain is not humble. It's proud because we feel like It'd be better if God softened it a little bit. Well, we don't know better than Him. So we are to be humble ambassadors of Christ. He's the King, and He speaks with authority. And so even this humility that Peter's talking about is not a wimpy humility. It's a strong humility. It relies completely on what God has said. Let your mindset be shaped by the gospel that comes to you with authority, and repeat that gospel to yourself and to others with authority. That is part of humility. It's not being harsh, though, right? It's being loving, patient with people. But it doesn't water down the truth. So how is your humble mindset? Um, Do you ever mock others in conversation or in your heart, mocking them? Do you demand your own way or your own preferences or your own, I guess, perceived rights? Do you serve others in the church? Are some, do some people seem to be too low for you to serve love and honor? Something about them that, that disqualifies them in your mind from your responsibility to serve them. Do you avoid delivering God's warnings to others in order to avoid difficulty for yourself, preferring your own welfare and comfort and ease so you avoid speaking God's truth, preferring yourself and your own comfort? 
Are you preoccupied with what others think of you? Man, I just, it's heartbreaking to think that all those books on self-esteem, people are obsessed with, you know, they're just they're with themselves, right? Thinking they're not good enough to impress others or even to please themselves. And then all the books come and help them become more obsessed about that. We need to be authentically lowly. It's the mindset before it is in action. So again, I'd say, remember the gospel every day. A sinner I am. God's wrath I deserve. But Christ died my death, my life to preserve. Forgiven I am with righteousness dressed, with God always for me, forever I'm blessed. Right? The confidence is not in the fact that um, I am good, I'm deserving of things. My confidence is in the fact that God blesses undeserved sinners like me. We know we're, when we rehearse the gospel, we know we're sinful and un- unworthy. Um, and we know that what we are, we are by God's sovereign mercy and grace. And this grace makes us wonderstruck. If only we could be wonderstruck every morning that we are loved. Certainly this would save us from being pushy and self-assertive and self-obsessed. So how do you pursue this? Uh, some recommendations. Uh, yes, think about the gospel every day. I would, I would encourage you to do it in some systematic way. Uh, I, I have this gospel poem I just rehearsed, and I, I talk to the Lord about that every morning and when I'm in the shower, and then again, usually in my prayer walk, um, because it just encapsulates all those fundamental truths for me, and um, it helps me. But you may have whatever it is that helps you, but be satisfied. Be sat- so I, sometimes I'll say it, and I can tell I'm not paying attention to it. <laughs> like, okay, back it up. A sinner I am. God's wrath I deserve. Right? This is how I'm in the shower. I might talk about this. Really? I, if I focus on the soap and stuff, it doesn't work. <laughs> I got to get this out of the way first. Uh, as I'm enjoying his, as my, the water's in the back of my head, and it feels great. And I'm thinking about how I'm a sinner deserving God's, God's wrath, and he's blessing me. Okay, so whatever you use to be satisfied in the morning with his steadfast love. And then, uh, so that's going to help you with humility, right? Confess your sin as a pattern and then thank God for forgiveness. When you pray and do it first thing in the morning, you spend at least three minutes. It's not very long, right? Three minutes trying to think of all the sin that you've committed in the last day or a couple days. Because there's a lot. So don't give 30 seconds to it. Give three minutes to it. That will help with our humility, right? And trust your concerns to him, acknowledging that he has your best interest at heart. So what you're saying is, I can't do this. I'm getting down low. I can't do anything. I can't take care of this. I'm concerned about this. I can't take care of it. can't take care of it. Let me get down low before God, keep entrusting concerns to him. 
All right, I'm not going to finish this text. All right, there's more, though. Uh, you don't need to seek your own interests. I've said before, he'll take care of that. He has your best interests, right? And admire Christ. Uh, spend time in praise. After you entrust those concerns, spend time in praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering who he is. Remembering what you've read in the Gospels about him. What he's doing right now. Book of Hebrews. And tell him how great he is. Tell him one thing after another how great he is. Um, and then intentionally seek his glory. Live with an agenda. Think, what am I going to do today in service to him? Right? So you're not going to slip back into living for yourself. I mean, who do you think you are to set your own agenda and to live for whatever you want? Isn't that pride? Let's, be, let's get down low. Say, I'm a slave. King Jesus, what do you want me to do today? What can I do to serve you? And then talk to the Lord about your day, what you're going to do for your day. I'm going to try and encourage this person. I'm meeting with this person. I'm working today. I'm going to be at the computer. Lord Jesus, I'm going to do this for you. Right? You talk to him about, his, about your day and the agenda that would honor him. And that is getting down low. Right? And you're asking him for help. Right? That's the agenda. I can't do it without you. I need your help to do it in the right way. Um, so, Peter's, this is Peter's discussion about loving the brotherhood. Next time, we'll talk about honoring all men, because I think he widens that focus in part four. All right. I'm glad I'm ending early, unless, unless I pray too long. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, we look at all these things. These are things that you call us to, and it's a tall order. Can we do this? Can we really be humble? We know what it's like to wrestle with our pride. Can we really be sensitive to others and care about them this way? Well, we can because you tell us in your word, and your word is true. You tell us that you ransomed us from a futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. Yes, the, our forefathers, they couldn't do these things powerless to do these things truly uh, without knowing you. But we've been ransomed from that. Lord Jesus, when you, when you went to the cross, when you hung on the cross, you thought of us and you loved us and you determined that you would bear our sin so that we would be set free. And if you had not done that, then we would be enslaved to our sin, enslaved to selfish desires, enslaved to ignorance. So thank you for having mercy on us and loving us when we were still sinners. Thank you for dying for the ungodly. Thank you that all provision has been made. And so you're really calling us to come and enjoy what you've purchased for us. And we rejoice that you give us such an invitation. We rejoice that you love us so. We pray this through Christ. Amen.